Was building on the lecture versus coming daily under pressure. Working on the plot and the scheme. The true stock trademark is at the edge of your dreams. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another Startup Band podcast. As usual, it's myself and Graham on this. How are you getting on there, Graham? Hungry. <laughs> oh, I'm so yeah. hungry. You were saying you were intermittent fasting or something like that, is it? Yeah, God, it's terrible. It actually wasn't bad. The first day or two was okay, um, but it's just when... So basically, you give yourself a, a window where you can eat in um, for people that don't, that don't know what it is. And I've chosen uh, midday and, and 8 p.m. as my eight-hour window. Which Why is, are you doing this, by the way? I just... I've seen, I seen some YouTube videos about it, and I was like, oh, look, I'll just, I'll just try it. Loads of people say it's great. Um, and It's great for what, though? It's great for just sh- shedding fat and just feeling healthier. Um... I know Jack Dorsey took it to a new extreme. He only eats one meal a day now. Um, Jack Dorsey, the the founder of Tw- and CEO of Twitter, um, mm. which I'm not going to go that far. But now it's supposed to it's supposed to be great. You're supposed to feel super energetic, uh, and it's supposed to be really really good for you. Um, so so let's see. But um, I'll uh, I'll send on some videos so you can have a look. But um, yeah, so I'm hungry. Other than that, I'm good. How's things with you? Yeah, good. I'll tell you what I've actually tried, um, which I think is a game changer, is cold showers. And literally getting in ice cold water, showering every single day. And I do believe it is a game changer. And I I only tried it because I was listening to it um, on the Tim Ferriss uh, podcast there when he was talking to Hugh Jackman. Mm. And they were talking about, uh, the two of them were talking about how it, it, it had, you know, done so much for them energy wise um and thinking wise and all that and i just said right okay and i i literally i i was listening to that podcast just before i was due to have a shower anyway so i jumped in i tried the cold shower thing but i've been doing it now about a week and a half nearly two weeks and it's not cold anymore it's weird it's it's actually not cold anymore the initial the like the first one i had was was ice cold you know and it, it was ice cold for the whole thing but now it's like it's only ice cold for the first couple of seconds and after that it feels like a normal shower I thought you were doing it to save on the the hot water bill. That as well, you know that as well. But honestly, like it's such a game changer, and you feel so different in your clothes for the rest of the day because you get out and your skin is like you know the way you get that kind of burny feeling from from cold water. Yeah. Um. So when you get out, you're really warm because you're you're no longer under the the cold water. And then when you put on your clothes, I, I don't know. It's it's a weird feeling. You're like extremely cozy or comfortable in your clothes mm. but um it definitely wakens you up i, I and i actually it's, believe it or not i actually look forward to having a shower doing it that way now i don't know why but you should try it give it a go yeah sometimes inadvertently i have to take a cold shower and i hate it but yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll do it a couple times in a row and stick with it yeah it's a game change but look i'm sure people want to hear more about who we have on the show today rather than intermittent fasting and also cold showers so let's tell them who we have on on the show today is Tim Jackson, a former journalist and founder of XQL.com, which actually sold in 2007 for $2 billion. He then went on to be the managing director of Carlisle Internet Partners Europe, which is a $700 million fund. And currently, he's a managing partner and founder of Walking VC. So let's get into the show. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Hi, guys. It's lovely to talk to you. 
It's great, great. We just wanted to start off because we, we spoke a little bit before the recording started and we told you a little bit about the startup band story and, and how Mark and I used to write articles in entrepreneurship and journalism and tech. And you had a, a very similar beginning, but obviously for the FT, not for a, a small blog like Mark and I had. Can, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your time getting into journalism and, and, and the beginnings? Well, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. I was a journalist for 10 or 12 years and I joined The Economist straight out of university and then ended up a decade later writing a technology column for the Financial Times newspaper. And the timing was kind of weird because I was writing it at the time when the commercial internet was just beginning to take off. And I, um, for for two years, I wrote about a different company every week in this tiny, tiny, but fast growing economy. And it was a time when, you know, Amazon opened when I was when I was already writing these columns. And so I just looked at the phone number on their website and called and somebody picked up and said, hey, Jeff, there's a call for you. Um, and, you know, I wrote a piece about about Yahoo when Mike Moritz at Sequoia gave a million dollars uh, to uh, to the founders and called him and said, what on earth are you doing? Why did you do this? And what then happened was that after about two years, I began to notice something very striking, which was that these tiny little companies that I had written about and said were really exciting and interesting had got big fast and that several of them were already billion-dollar public companies within a couple of years of my having started to write the column. And that was Can you remember moment. your... Can you remember your conversation with Jeff? Yes. Um, I suggested to him that he needed a loyalty program. And he said, no, Tim, you are flat wrong because my mission for the next 15 years is to get new customers. And loyalty programs are about privileging existing customers over new customers. Hmm. Um, good point. Good point. Good which point. was a very good point. He was totally right. Yeah. I think I think Prime came out like like like... 2008 or something like that and that that was a privilege of existing customers over new customers but he's always been very smart at turning the dial very carefully between growth and profit of course of course and when you were interviewing these these founders and these vcs and these fast-growing tech companies was there was there a sort of an itch to do something yourself or or when did when did that sort of start to happen well i didn't realize there was an itch until my partner emily uh, said to me after kind of listening in on my 27th call of the month or whatever, she said, why are you giving these people all this free consulting advice they didn't ask for? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, after you interview them, you keep saying, hey, why don't you guys do this? And why don't you do that? And why don't you do the other? She said, if you think you're so damn smart, why don't you do a startup of your own? Wow. So you were, you were actually giving these guys advice as well on, on the side. Well, they weren't asking for it. I was, the whole point about being an opinion columnist is that, you know, you're required to have opinions on all kinds of subjects. So you ask me anything, I'll have a strong opinion on it. Mm. Did, you, did you ever get to, to invest or, or even buy shares in any of the companies when they were small? Or, or is that something that you look back on now and kind of go, damn, why didn't I just put a few dollars into Amazon? Well, exactly. Not in any of the private ones, but, it, but definitely in some of the early IPOs, which did extremely well. Mm. Um, but anyway, the irony was that after I, this idea had been put, put in my mind, you know, if you think you're so damn smart, why don't you have a go? I thought, okay, I will. Um, and I'd actually been living in Silicon Valley for a couple of winters because I'd written a, a book about Intel where I'd interviewed a lot of people there. Mm. And so um, I, I had 
got a fairly clear idea of how the Silicon Valley funding model worked in terms of, you know, you go to a VC, you present them with a compelling case for what the business is going to be. And then three weeks later, um, you know, a check for $3 million drops through the letterbox. Um, And so I thought I would do one better. I thought I would start a business, but show that I was really serious by actually kicking it off with my own money um, so that it would already be going by the time the check arrived. Um, Sadly, that turned out to be mistaken. Really? Just a a quick one before we dig into that further, because I always find it interesting. Uh, We had um, had Steve O'Hear, a TechCrunch journalist in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we asked him the same question. You're interviewing so many uh, different founders and, and leaders of these tech businesses. Was it hard to zone in on something, right? Did, did you have all these ideas and you're giving them, you're an a, a, opinionated person, so you're giving them your advice. Was it hard to zone in on one thing? Was that difficult? Well, the interesting thing was that by the time I got to take it seriously, I had profiled approximately 100 different companies. And I'd also seen which ones were uh, within the space of two or three years showing evidence of working and which ones were already failing. And so I was able to make a kind of shortlist of categories of businesses where I thought that there was clearly an opportunity there and map those opportunities against the skills and the things that I thought I could bring. And so I boiled it down to three models. One was um, online book selling because Amazon at the time was only in the US and was not anywhere outside the US. Um, A second was online brokerage because E-Trade was letting people buy and sell stocks, uh, but again, only in the US. Um, And the third was online auctions, because even though eBay had not started yet, there was a company called OnSale that had started doing online auctions. Mm -hmm. And so I compared the three and concluded that that what little I knew would best be matched against online auctions. And that was the company I started. The the company you started, uh, QXL, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Um, Was that like it was online, but was it did you start that in the UK? Or did you start that in America? I, I started it with the with the plan to make it a pan European a pan European auction platform. Um, there are three hundred and thirty million inhabitants of the US and three hundred and fifty million in Europe, and so it struck me the European market is potentially bigger. Mm. You you put, you put was that the business you were saying you put your own money into in the beginning? That's right. I didn't, yeah. How much money did you put in the beginning, if, if you don't mind me asking? Well, the the answer is a hell of a lot because it was my entire life savings and then some. Wow. And it wasn't quite how I intended it to go, because as I said, I thought that the check from the VCs would arrive fairly soon. Mm. And when I, what I discovered when I pitched the European VCs was that they were very different from all the investors that I knew in San Francisco. Because More they risk averse. questions like, what makes you think anybody's going to buy anything over the internet in Europe? Yeah. Yeah, and so it was. It wasn't a case of if you build it, they will come, hoping that all the the VC money would come flooding in. Well, it, that's exactly right. And the, you know, the, the 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 correct question that they that they should have asked was, what the heck makes you think that a journalist with no prior management experience can build a startup? That was a very good question. Um, yeah, but I think the, the the risk that nobody in Europe would ever buy anything on the internet was not one that I took very seriously. Can I just ask you when when it comes to you at the moment, right? We'll we'll get into what you're doing currently in a, in a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you something now, since we're on the topic of Europe and and America. You know, like you see 
because we've come across this with companies before where you, you'd see the size of America. And if you can crack America, you're doing extremely well. But then, as you said, when you look at it and you look at the sheer size of Europe, Europe is bigger. Right. But the, 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 the barriers to entry within Europe, you've got so many different countries, you've got language barriers, you've got the whole lot. Do you do you think that's an extremely difficult move for companies to make if they were to choose between the two? Uh, absolutely, it is difficult, and the irony is that since Britain is just still still going through the convulsion of Brexit, that Europe has over the last twenty years made a lot of progress in creating a single European market. Um, you know, free movement of capital, people, goods, and services, and yet the irony is that even with that single market, you know, there are some significant barriers, like people speak different languages, and so it's a heck of a lot harder to get to a billion dollars of sales in Europe than it is to get to a billion dollars of sales in America. Mm. And, and some of the European VC saying, obviously, you didn't have any, any management, management experience. When, when you were scaling that company, when you started and you began to scale it, did, did you bump into those challenges? And did you ever think possibly they, they are right? Did you ever, ever have any doubt? Well, I, I would say I, I came to the conclusion that they might be right within about three weeks of starting it. Oh, really? <laughs> um, because what I swiftly discovered was that I not only had no management experience, I was actually a fairly crappy manager. And I think that's a big difference with what you see as the generation of current founders who've started companies in 2020. Um, and I concluded actually probably within 90 days of starting the business that it would probably do better run by somebody else. And so I actually offered my own job as CEO uh, to three different people in succession, hoping that they would take it over. And the reason I did that was because when you've actually funded the business yourself, as opposed to done it with other people's money, it helps you really focus on the fact that there's two different things you're optimizing for. One is your job title. Do you, know, do you like the bragging rights of being able to tell people you're a CEO? And the other is the fact that this is your single biggest investment. Um, yeah. And I concluded that the best thing for my investment would be to have somebody marginally less incompetent than me running the business. Sadly, were, were they... the first three people that I offered it to turned it down. So I had to keep showing up for work. I was going to ask you, were they currently working for the business or were these people you were looking to, to bring on board if they accepted the job? Uh, so, so one was uh, and the second two and the second two weren't. But the key thing is that the sector was incredibly nascent at the time. And that because there hadn't at the time been any big European tech IPOs, um, most established seasoned managers who knew what they were worth didn't fancy the risk of joining an untried startup. Mm. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because like I, I you started that company in in 97 if I'm correct. That's right, exactly. Um the, the year I was actually coming out of school and I like even I remember even like our internet being very early days and it, it, like you you would then later on in in 99 I think it was if I'm correct again you you went IPO. Like how how does a company prepare itself for something like that? And how do you know if and when the time is right? Well, um, I think the most important thing is that what makes it possible to make a company public is if you've got a clear trajectory of growth and, and either profitability or movement towards profitability over a period of time. And 
even though uh, I was a pretty piss poor CEO, I was able to hire some people who were really very good. And over time, um, after an initial kind of three to four month period in which we really didn't get it right, we found something that clicked and the business grew fairly consistently. I think it was probably something like 18% a month uh, over the next two to three years. And what tends to happen is the way you know that you're ready to IPO a business is because your investors and then ultimately the investment bank that you hire will tell you so. Hmm. It's interesting you say that, Tim. Just going back to obviously, it was ninety days you 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 stepped aside as CEO. Is that right? Or when you no, it was when ninety you days was when I wanted to, I ended up having right. to stay for three years. Oh right, okay. Because we had we've spoken to a few people um, since since the lockdown. One being Julian Hearn from from Huel, uh, the meal replacement company, and uh, and the other uh, the other being Farm Drop. Right. Ben Pugh from Farm Drop, and both of both of those have actually stepped aside as as CEOs, and they could not be more happy about it. Right, because there's this sort of stigma, and I know obviously Tom Blomfield from Monzo was in was in the news as as becoming you know president and not CEO anymore, and there's a lot of negativity around it. But anyone that we speak to, they just you know in reality when they actually do it, they say this is the best thing ever. I get to do what I actually want to do, not all the boring stuff. Right, so Julian Hearn is now CMO. He does the cool, fun marketing stuff, and he loves that. And then Ben is taking a, a completely different position in Farm Drop. What position did you feel you you could you could slide into that you say this is my actual strength here? Was it just a direction of the company, or what was it? Well, actually, actually, no. I, I had always, you know, my 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 history until then had been to be an analyst and a thinker, um, and and a, and a writer, and so. My my ambition when I was running the company not very well was actually to revert to doing that. And so my plan was not to become VP sales. My plan was to hand over the keys to somebody else who would then run the business. And so the way we did it was that I actually wrote into the, the term sheet of the final VC round we did before the IPO that it had to be understood by all sides that we would start a search for a new CEO as soon as the money was in. So we closed the round, started the search, and we found the right guy. And the and the and the the, the new CEO, his first day on the job was the bake off for the IPO, when we had Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and CSFB and so on, uh, pitching for the job of taking us public. And that meant there was a very neat division of labor. I wrote the S one, the registration statement that you have to file with the with the Securities and Exchange Commission to take a company public in the U.S. And he did the roadshow. And once the roadshow was done, I swept the contents of my desk into a bin liner and went home. And I was pretty happy mm-hmm. with that. Can, can I ask you, because obviously you, you stayed on as CEO, at what point do you feel, because obviously, you know, you, you took the company public and it's done extremely well. So at what point did you realize, no, wait a minute, I am actually the right CEO for the, or the right person for the CEO role? Well, I don't know. I thought of myself as the caretaker. And I thought that the company was doing well, and there were some really talented people working working for the business. And I owed it to them to do my best and keep showing up, even though I was increasingly aware of my own, of my own deficiencies. Um, and I thought the thing to do was to, was to keep running it and to keep growing it um, until the point when it could be handed over to someone who would then be able to take it to the next level. I suspect personally, probably um, my limit in terms of actually managing people is I don't think I'm any good at managing more than 50 people. And there's an interesting 
comparison between the time then and the time now that at that time, it was pretty much unknown for CEOs to have coaches, for startup CEOs to have someone helping them with the issues of learning the skills they need to learn to run the business as it gets bigger. And I didn't really have that. And so from my perspective, it was a kind of binary choice of continue to struggle through while feeling uh, unqualified and incapable uh, or handed on to somebody else who would be able to do it better. Mm. And, and when, obviously you might be skipping forward quite a bit, but it's definitely an interesting one. When, when did you look at, at leaving the business? When did you think it was the right time to, to get out? Well, obviously I, I was a large shareholder, so I had a seat on the board. And what happened was that I stayed on the board after the IPO. I decided it was very important not to interfere. So I sent everybody an email saying there won't be any back channels with me and any communication you want to have with me should come via the CEO. Um, about a year after the IPO, I came to the conclusion that the direction the company was going in was not one that I supported. And I thought the best thing to do at that point was actually to leave the board. Um, and by that time, by the way, contrary to my expectation that I would just um, kind of return home and, res- and resume my career as a journalist, um, uh, by that time, uh, I'd actually taken another job because the headhunters that we had used to hire the CEO um, put me into a large private equity firm that had raised three quarters of a billion dollars for a European venture fund uh, and wanted to build a team of people to run it. That was the Carlisle Group, was that's, it? That's right, exactly. Okay, and and what way did that change? Because obviously you had you had you know you were CEO of this company. It had gone IPO. It was quite valuable. I know it didn't sell on until or didn't get acquired until about two thousand and eight. But what? How did you? Uh, let me see. How did you adapt to going in? Because you were looking after a fund. Was that fund, as you said, um, about around seven hundred and fifty million? What was it that you were investing in? What type of companies? Well, we were doing we were doing across the across the board European internet and technology, and I think the thing that attracted me to it was perhaps the same thing that got me into journalism in the first place. That I'm curious and I like to learn new things. And having done five private rounds of investment when I was an entrepreneur, I thought it would be interesting to understand what the world looked like from the other side of the table from the perspective of the venture capitalists investing in startups. And what did it look like on the other side of the table? How different was it? Well, um, I suppose the first thing that was a surprise was that I expected that when I would join, I would bring a strong network that I knew because I knew most people in the internet space in Europe at the time because it was a tiny, it was a tiny community back then and kind of strong opinions about what would work and what would not work. And what I expected was that they would have this sort of rigorous, highly quantified deal machine, which would look at a particular company and then use some very sophisticated quantitative analysis to decide whether it was going to work or not, and to decide that make the yes, no decision about whether to invest. And what I discovered was that in common with most other venture capital funds, actually, there's a much higher degree of gut and a much lower degree of, of science than you might think. And that quite a lot of it is impressionistic decision making in the fog. 
would you have been one of the few who who were able to come at it from both sides? Because as I said, you had started a company, went IPO, and now you're you're involved in in say funding. Were you one of the few that was able to see what it was like for an investor, or you knew what it was like for, or sorry, for a startup? I should say to stand up in front of an investor and pitch their company, what they go through. Was it easier for you? And you, you, you probably were one of the few at that time. Well, I, I certainly empathized with the feeling of being a founder and pitching to endless investors, none of whom give you feedback and half of whom don't even return your calls. And so yeah. one of the things I resolved to do really early on was to try and be fairly open and transparent and at least respond to people. And that's something which I've continued to do uh, right the way through to, to Walking Ventures, where basically every non Every serious funding pitch that we that we receive does get a response, and there is an SLA for how quickly that will how quickly we'll respond. Mm. But I think that once you get past that kind of initial superficial stuff, um, I think many VCs who come to the sector from from finance bring with them expectations of much greater certainty than it's possible to have. So until surprisingly recently, it wasn't at all unusual for a VC to say to an entrepreneur, you know, show me your five-year projections. Tell me what your sales are going to be in 2025. And my own feeling is that when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have any idea where you're going to be in six months, let alone in yeah. years. Mm. I was going to say, yeah. And the idea that you could actually have any degree of accuracy in forecasting over such a long period is frankly absurd. And so I think that perhaps one of the things I brought to to in, to to venture capital was being aware that everyone is having to make decisions on the basis of very little information. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, perhaps, that I brought was that you know that old thing that people say, um, you know, you shouldn't, you, you know, you'll never eat a sausage again if you go to the sausage factory and see how they're made. Yeah, um, I think that having been inside a startup, I knew that uh, I knew that things can be quite chaotic. And most people who've worked even for super well-known startups like Google or Facebook or Spotify or whatever um, will often tell stories about the internal chaos that does not match the kind of stellar image of the company that people outside have. And I think it's quite valuable as an investor to have a little empathy for the difficulty of building something and growing it really fast and the fact that some corners may get cut and some things may get done that shouldn't have got done. Yeah, of yeah, course. It's interesting. You you do see a lot of, and to be fair, you see the horror stories um, with, with investors and, and, and startup founders more from the side of startups because obviously maybe being a bit more, more vocal about it. I did see a tweet from a company that we know called Kashmir, uh, a fintech company, and, and somebody wanted to invest early stage five hundred pounds, but wanted to see three years projections. <laughs> you know? um, well, so, maybe, so you, by the way, maybe there's a perfect illustration there of of request for certainty being in inverse proportion to how sophisticated the investor is. Exactly, it's it's yeah. an interesting one, and that probably leads us on nicely to walking VC because I think it's well well documented that obviously the walk around the park. Uh, you know, for an hour instead of sitting in a boardroom. Can can people probably know about it already that are listening to this podcast, but can you explain some of the thinking around it? Is it purely just to people have people off guard and people more relaxed or, or is it just because you want a bit of fresh air? Well no, it's it's actually it's actually not at all about about keeping people off guard. I think it's really this. It's that one of the things that I observed when I was an entrepreneur fundraising is that the setup with quite a lot of VCs is partly 
it has the result and you begin to wonder whether this is by design of slightly intimidating you as an entrepreneur. You know, come to our super fancy office in Mayfair or Shoreditch and be intimidated by the clear evidence that we have a giant pile of money and if you suck up to us, maybe we'll give you some. Um, and my feeling is that that establishes a certain dynamic um, in the discussion between entrepreneur and investor that is a kind of unequal dynamic right from the start. And I feel... I've I've always liked talking to people over over walks, and it struck me that there's something that's fundamentally more equal about two people just taking a stroll in the park and chatting, than you know go into conference room and wait, and somebody gives you a glass of chilled mineral water and says you know the partner will be with you soon. Um, I think there's also another point, which is that if you think about what the key issues are in making startups successful you could probably boil them down to three. One is the product as it is today. The second is the plan for what you're going to do in the future. And the third is the people. And in my experience, having looked at dozens and dozens of investments, actually the most important of those three is really the people, not the product or the plan. Mm -hmm. And yet if you think of the typical meeting between an entrepreneur and an investor, it's usually in a conference room with slides talking about the product and the plan. And there'll be one token slide headed team that's got 10 words and a picture for all of the key people involved. And my feeling yeah. was at Walking Ventures that it made sense for us to take the due diligence on the team and move that dramatically up the list, do that much earlier on, to try and understand the stories of the founders, why they were doing it, where they wanted to go with their lives, before getting into the nitty gritty about you know, what's the next iteration of the MVP going to look like. You you obviously vet a lot of these before you invite them along to go for a walk because we do all hear the you know you've got like ten ten seconds to sixty seconds to to really cap capture the attention of a VC so like I take it there's something that has come true to you that has caught your attention that you want to hear more of it or after after sixty seconds are you on now a twenty minute walk with someone that you've got no interest in investing in or or what way do you work it? Well, it's funny you say that actually because um many VCs have a reputation for really bad manners in pitch meetings, and you know I know a number of entrepreneurs who've actually stopped their pitch meeting, turned to the partner across the table, and said, "If you keep looking at Facebook, then I'm going to get up from this room and leave right now wow and I think that the reason that happens is that is that many VCs take meetings with entrepreneurs without doing a bit of basic due diligence to confirm that this is the kind of business they want to invest in. It's at the right stage and in the right sector and in the right geography and so on. And therefore, what happens is that 10 minutes into the meeting, they figure out that it's actually not an appropriate investment. And they feel that it would be rude for them to get up and say, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake. Let's end the meeting here. And they have this weird cognitive dissonance where they think that somehow the entrepreneur won't notice that they're doing their email during the slides. Um, yeah, cool. I, uh, I thought when 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 kind of iterating walking ventures that the way to handle it is to start by asking entrepreneurs for the least amount of information possible for us to figure out whether this is something that we could take forward. So our process is that we ask people to complete a very simple pitch form on the website, which takes four minutes or less to complete. Um, And that only if it looks like it's in scope from looking at that, do we then ask people to share some slides with us. 
And then only if after looking at the slides, does it look like it's something that we might be able to help out with, do I then propose a meeting? And that meeting mm, yeah. could be a short phone call or could be a video call or could be a walk. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have, um, although, I, I, although I've, I'm, I'm willing to walk 10 miles a day, I'm not willing to walk 50 miles a day. So I'm not, I'm not able to do more than a couple of walking meetings a day. And that means if you think about the number of, you know, because we, we get between 1,000 and 1,500 pitches a year, the simple arithmetic will tell you that I'm not able to offer a walk to everyone who pitches us. How, how do you spot something? Because you, you have, you know, there's probably a couple of early angel investors listening to this podcast as well. Like, how do you spot something that you think is going to do well? Well, I tend to look separately at the founders and at the and at the business. And um, the criteria I use for, for thinking about the business are the quality of the team, the traction that the business has achieved so far, the size of the market. All of those three things are pretty straightforward for most investors. And perhaps slightly less usually the entry barriers. I care a lot about whether your fantastic idea can be ripped off by other people easily. Because if it can then it's very hard to turn it into a sustainable and large and profitable business. Um, and then when I think about entrepreneurs, I think about different qualities that I think ideal founders have. And it's very important to be aware that there's a huge diversity in the kind of people who can succeed. There is no one size fits all. And I try to assess, I try to assess the founders relative to the opportunity. People talk a lot about product market fit, I think it's also important to think about founder market fit. So here's a good example. If you're running an enterprise SaaS business where you're trying to sell a piece of software to large companies with multiple stakeholders, then actually your kind of personal skills, your ability to show up in a, in a well-cut suit and look professional to a room full of middle-aged people are going to be kind of important. If by contrast, you're building a consumer product, which is an, a downloadable app, then you can build a business with an enormous number of people without having much by way of social skills at all. Look, for example, at Mark Zuckerberg in his early years. Um, you know, I think that Zuckerberg did an extraordinary job in the early years of Facebook, uh, but would not have been very good at Salesforce. Mm, of course, that's a really good. It's a really good example. I wanted to get your thoughts on something because we see this coming up a lot. And I know it enrages a lot of a lot of founders in in, in our community and, and in general. The whole thing that investors and VC say, well, uh, Google can do that, so don't bother, right? Or uh, Facebook could just launch this product. There's no barriers to entry. Whereas you look at the likes of uh, Zoom being a good example that if you know, if they went to a particular VC and they would just said, no, there's no point because Skype does this perfectly well. Don't bother. What What are your thoughts about saying? Google can do it, Facebook can do it, Twitter can do it, whatever it might be. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right, and it's a, and it's a perennial conversation. And it's funny, back in the 1990s, people used to say, um, people used to, that, that startup investors used to be hostile to the idea of anything that looked like it might be competing with Microsoft. Because Microsoft, you know, those were the pre-internet days when, when you know, software was packaged and sold on, sold on CD-ROMs and shipped through stores. And people would say, if you're building something that Microsoft thinks it ought to be building, then you're going to lose. And the slogan people used was, don't bet against Bill, i.e. you do not want to make an enemy of Bill Gates. Mm. I felt in the, in the first decade of the 2000s that the same thing was true of Google. 
And, you know, if you abbreviate don't bet against Bill to DBAB, then I suppose it would have to be D-bag, don't bet against Google in the first decade of the 2000s. Um, I think today I have a slightly more nuanced view of it. And and what I would say is that big tech companies um, are always interested in building new products. Look at the way that Microsoft with Teams has knocked off Slack so successfully. Um, you know, essentially they've, they've, they've looked at what Slack has done and they've, they've seen some terrific features of it and they've said, yeah, we can build some of that stuff. It's not patented. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that big tech companies tend not to look at opportunities that are smaller in size than a couple of billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And so it's certainly not the case that, you know, that Google or Facebook can do everything. But I think there is a question that founders can ask themselves, which is, is what I'm building a product or is it a feature? Because if it's really just a feature of a bigger product, then that's slightly scary. Let, let me give a controversial example. Um, uh, City Mapper. So City Mapper has got a beautiful user interface and it's had lots of good ideas about functionality. I'm still not yet convinced that City Mapper is a separate and distinct standalone business as compared with Google Maps or Apple Maps. Hmm. And I'm wondering whether City Mapper is really just a superior implementation. Now, you correctly cited the example of Zoom. You know, you can build a business that's worth tens of billions of dollars. Spotify is another example where you are copied by the incumbents and yet you still create enormous value. It's a hard one for investors. I don't think there are any easy answers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, here's another one for you. I've I've got two questions for you before we probably wrap this up. Um, just when it comes to to you personally as as investing, do you invest in companies that are just an idea? You know, so if someone comes to you with with a, with a company that they want to open up, but it hasn't started yet, it's an idea, but they need money to 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 set it up. Do you invest in those? And also, the the other question in it is the amount of money that people are asking for. Do you think that a lot of founders are getting carried away with the amount of money that they're asking for to start a company? I know it's completely different when, you, when you're when you trying to um, take a company to, to another level, but what you you, you normally invest in in early seed uh, companies. So a lot of those are, are ideas, if they are ideas, or do you want to see them up and running for a couple of months? And the second question there, as I said, is, are there are they asking for too much? Are are people asking for a million when they could actually set this up for one hundred and fifty thousand? Right. Well, those are two great questions, and th- the answer to the first one uh, about 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 do we invest in ideas alone is I used to, but not anymore. And the reason is that actually, if you back an idea, then really the only thing you're testing with the entrepreneur is how how persuasive are they, um, how plausible do they seem when they pitch to you. And plausibility and persuasiveness are very important, but the ability to actually run a business and build a product matter kind of quite a lot too. And it's very easy for early stage, early stage investors to, to come a cropper by backing very fluent, very authoritative looking people who actually are going to be no good at all at building a product. There's been an important change over the last decade, which is that an MVP that would have cost 100000 to build um, a decade ago can now be built for 10,000. Something that would have cost a million can now be built for 100,000. And therefore, I would typically want to see quite a compelling reason 
why entrepreneurs haven't been able to build at least an MVP and test it out with a $100 advertising voucher from, from Google and Facebook um, in order to be convinced to invest in something that is really just a deck and a dream. Yeah, I, I do. I know Mark was saying about wrapping it up, but I do, I do have one important question. And it's interesting because you've seen both sides of the fence here, which I think you're the first person we've spoken to since this has come up that can probably give good insight. When the when the pandemic hit, a lot of VCs, investors pulled on their deals, right? Or they changed the terms last minute or whatever it might be. And obviously founders were having a gripe and saying this isn't this isn't right. We, we had the deal closed. It was a done deal. And now they're saying, no, they're not going to follow through. Um, and, and founders obviously being hit quite hard with that. And then on the other side of the fence, we've seen investors say things are different. Things aren't the same as they were last week. So therefore, the deal isn't the same as it was last week. What, what's your opinion on, on, obviously, you can see both sides. What, what's your opinion on it? Well, it's interesting. This is something which I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about over the last couple of months, because I spend... I spend 20% of my time coaching CEOs where we are not an investor. And so I hear quite a lot from CEOs about the challenges they faced with fundraising and with dealing with their existing investors. I would say there's two separate things going on. One is that most VC term sheets contain the magic words, nothing in this term sheet is binding except for the confidentiality clause and the costs clause. And in a bull market, there is serious reputational damage for VCs if they take advantage of that clause. And they say, well, actually, it wasn't binding. So I feel free to walk away because something important has happened. I think that in a once in a century event like a pandemic such as COVID-19, that clause is more likely to get used. There's a separate question, which is to do with existing investors. And many existing investors set in the minds of the entrepreneurs they back a strong expectation that you will be able to come to us for your next round. And that often can cause a lot of upset and a lot of hurt when if you're an entrepreneur and you execute on your plan and you go back to your VC and say, okay, we're ready for Series A now, and they reply, I don't think so, then that can be problematic. And I've spent some time with CEOs in recent weeks helping them figure out a plan B when their existing investors aren't ready to move forward. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's it's such an interesting, and obviously it's nobody, for the most part, nobody's gone through this before, right? It's it's, it's all new to everybody on, on both sides both sides of the fence. But look, Tim, we're, we're coming up to 40 minutes. Actually, that's bang on 40 minutes. So look, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. We know you're busy. I'm sure the audience love that, Tim. Thank you so much. Well, thank you and lovely to talk to you both. Thanks, Tim. Thanks everyone so much for tuning in. If you are listening to this on iTunes, please do leave a review because it really helps our rankings. And also if you're listening to this on Spotify, please do share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe and thank you so much for listening. Make sure you check out the next episode.